Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that your spirit will be at work in our, in our minds and our hearts to give us um, understanding and also receptivity to what you have to say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Climax or anti-climax? Will something end on a high or a low? Will it finish with a fanfare or a fizzle? As some of you may know, uh, I was at Sydney Olympic Stadium in 2005 to see Australia play Uruguay in football. This was a particularly important game because if Australia won it, we would qualify for our first Football World Cup for 32 years, which at that stage was the vast majority of my conscious life. We always felt the last hurdle in qualification attempts. This was our latest effort. And I was out at the stadium with about 100,000 other people watching the game. It was quite tense. Very close game, very exciting game. And at the end of full time, it was a tie. Ooh. So it went into extra time. Very tense, very tense. Any goal was going to clinch it pretty much. End of extra time, it was still a tie. People were just at their wits end, you know, with tension and it went to a penalty shootout. And so one by one players from various teams came up to take their kicks and it got down to a point where a guy by the name of John Aloisi for Australia had a kick and if he scored the penalty, Australia was going to the World Cup for the first time in 32 years. But remember, we've had a long history of falling at the last hurdle. Anyway, he ran in, he kicked it, and as many of you probably will remember, he scored, the stadium erupted, we were on our feet, John Aloisi just took his shirt off and ran around the stadium like a madman swinging around. There's a very famous bit of footage of him doing that. I was hugging people I'd never met before. It was an incredible climax. If you wanted a climax, that was a good one. And for what it's worth, the feeling of mild euphoria stayed with me for quite a few days. You had to wake up thinking, oh, we qualified, you know, isn't that nice? Yeah, a real climax. Now, that same year, earlier that year, in fact, uh, my wife Shireen and I uh, went on our big pre-kid overseas holiday. We figured we could pull off one or two overseas trips, perhaps once before we had kids, perhaps once when we, you know, have kids. But anyway, it was a big pre-kid trip. And uh, on this trip, we found ourselves in Prague in the Czech Republic, a wonderful city, home to the famous Prague astronomical clock. It's a very fine clock which dates back to the year about 1410. sits on the southern wall of the old town hall in the old town square. Some of you may even know it. And apparently it's the oldest astronomical clock still in operation. It's a fine piece of work. And we'd heard that on the hour the clock would put on this display whereby you know the apostles and little figures of death and other interesting things would sort of come out and do various things and apparently it was really something to see. And we knew we had before too long that really if we you know, considered ourselves thinking people, we would have to go and view this incredible spectacle. Not to have done so, we were led to the impression, would have been utter madness. So one morning we stood with a whole lot of other uh, tourists and travellers in front gazing up at the astronomical clock waiting for the hour to tick over and for it to put on its display which no doubt would make the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter movie special effects look like something out of a 1970s Doctor Who. We stared counting the seconds, bing, and then the hour came. Now, as I recall it, I think one or two little figures maybe moved a little bit here or there and maybe something opened or closed and everyone's sort of standing there. It's obviously, that those sort of fairly minor perambulations were the precursor of something far greater. So we're waiting, 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 and then it dawned on us that 
that pretty lame display was actually it. Uh, maybe in 1410 that would have been considered quite exciting, but at this day and age it wasn't. It, it was an absolute anticlimax, and everyone was just sort of thinking, and everyone was silent except for one lone American lady who, after about 15 seconds, just goes, Is that it? And I think she expressed what everyone thought. Now, such an anticlimax was it that I think in the next few days I went back a few times just to stand with the crowd and watch what they'd do with the horrible anticlimax of the whole thing. So amusing was it. And so taken by this whole thing was I that I even bought my very own astronomical clock mug. There it is pictured. If you have a cup of tea at our place, you could get one of these mugs because I just found the whole thing so amusing. Big anticlimax. Anyway. Now, what about the ending of the book of Job? Job 42, verses 7 to 17. Is that a climax or an anti-climax? It's a reading which Rachel gave us a few moments ago. And it's interesting that some people don't seem to really like the end of Job. Not only does it revert from poetry back to prose, but some don't like what it describes. I mean, there's been all this analysis of suffering. There's been this agonising over suffering. And then after 41 and a half chapters of this, then suddenly, and God bless Job, and he got kids and he got a whole lot of riches and he got a whole lot more animals and everyone came and ate with him again. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, God suddenly blesses Job at the end in a few verses with restored health, prosperity, relationships, more children and he lives to a ripe old age. And some feel that the magnificent pathos of the previous chapters has been done away with by this Hollywood fairy tale happily ever after sort of ending. It doesn't have what some might prefer which is sort of like the hard-edged realism of some movies and literary works today. Well, to that I say, tough luck. I think God is less concerned with contemporary literary tastes than he is with truth. And can I say, thank goodness for the ending of Job. Well, and it would suggest this is our last week in our Job series, which we've been doing this term. The topic I've entitled The Climax for obvious reasons, the passage 42, 7 to 17. An outline of the main points are on the inserts. Firstly, I'm going to look at Job as mediator, then Job as beneficiary, and finally, is Jesus our sacrifice and mediator? So that's where we're going. So let's look at point one, Job as mediator. Now, uh, over recent weeks, we've seen that you know, Job has suffered incredibly and then Job and his three friends had this quite extended debate as to why Job was suffering. Job saying, I've done nothing wrong to deserve this. And his three friends are all agreeing with each other and saying in different ways, yes, you did. We get what we deserve. Your suffering must be because you deserve it. Job refuses to accept that. And this goes back and forward for quite a number of chapters, 30 to 35 chapters or thereabouts. And then last week, uh, Steve Young was here speaking. He would have got to chapter 38 through to 42 verse 6 and finally, thank goodness, after all this discussion, the Lord appears and puts in his view on the things which have been taking place. Now, I preached on the same passage up at Springwood last week and I said that when God appears in these chapters, uh, he overwhelms uh, Job with his power, with his wisdom, with his justice and I would also argue with his love. And in response to this, Job uh, repents. Now, as I said last week, and I I imagine Steve may have said something similar, um, Job, I do not believe, is repenting of the view that he wasn't getting what he deserved because we know he didn't get what he deserved. What I think he was repenting of was, I guess, uh, the reckless and somewhat arrogant attitude 
which he, with which he had questioned God. Now, there's nothing wrong, in my view, with questioning God when we're suffering, but we need to do it humbly, right? So, if you or I are suffering and we're thinking, what is going on? We can say, God, please, I don't understand, help me, you know? We can humbly throw our questions at God, at God and we can humbly throw our pain at God, right? But we don't sort of put ourselves on the same level as God and say, what do you think you're doing, God? You've got a lot to answer for. Boy, if I could put my case to you, then you'd feel sorry, wouldn't you? Right? You can humbly question God, but we don't arrogantly, recklessly put ourselves on the same level or even above God and say, what do you think you're doing? I think that's the sort of area which Job was straying into and I think it's that attitude uh, that he uh, was repenting of. Anyway, so uh, Job repents. Uh, 42, 1 to 6, he repents, I believe, of this attitude. And then verse 7, the start of our reading, which was read out today, God says something that I think would have pretty much floored everyone who was there at the time and heard it. Let me remind you of verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Wow, so what is the truth about God that Job has spoken, which he's being commended for? What can I suggest it might be all or some of the following? Uh, In 42 verses 1 to 6, Job has repented of his (laughs) inappropriate questioning. Maybe uh, God is saying, yeah, that's the right thing. Job has spoken rightly there. Secondly, Job has also refused to accept that he was getting what he deserved, you know, that suffering is proportional to sin or anything like that. And we know that is true uh, from the book and, and so he's probably been commended for holding to that attitude as well. But some have also suggested that the other thing which Job does right is that Job treats God like an actually a, a personal being rather than sort of like an abstract system. So perhaps Job's friends sort of thought God was a bit like this sort of celestial slot machine. You do good, you put in good, you get good, you put in bad, you get bad. Job doesn't have that view. Uh, Job refuses to curse God. He refuses to tick the you get what you deserve box. He keeps banging on the door saying, God, what's going on? Tell me. He treats God like a personal being, which of course God is. So I think uh, Job has been committed for perhaps one, two or perhaps all three uh, of those things. And uh, God clearly values people thinking about him in the right way. But it's Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, who apparently don't think about God in the right way. Verse 7 again, God says to them, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me. Now they probably would have been a bit affronted by this because they thought they had it right. The three of them all agreed with each other. You're saying what I'm saying and what he's saying, right? We're all in agreement. And when they were expressing the view that you get what you deserve and God hands out, you know, proportional to, to, to sin and stuff like that, um, they probably were expressing popular wisdom at the time. So I thought they had popular wisdom on their side. I thought they had their wise friends on their side. They now realise they have been uh, entirely wrong and they've gotten it wrong. God doesn't necessarily give you what you deserve in this life in a simple formalistic way uh, and perhaps they treated God like a celestial slot machine rather than a, a person or a being to whom we, we can relate. And as a result, they need to do something because of their mistake. And We read in verse 8, God says as follows. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. 
So the first thing they have to do is to offer, make some burnt offerings, offer some sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices are actually quite extreme ones because nowhere else in the Pentateuch has anyone ever asked to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. It's quite a lot. Can you imagine the amount of meat and blood which would have been generated by that activity? I mean, it's really quite a major sacrifice. Uh, suggests that God feels that their mistake is really quite serious. And then secondly, they have to get Job to pray for them. Now, there's a bit of humble pie to eat, isn't it? For over 30 chapters, you've been saying, Job, you've got it wrong. 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 What? We've got it wrong. He's got to pray for us. Okay. You know, it wouldn't have been that easy to take. Um, but they needed Job to act, to pray for them and to act as a mediator. Now, there are a number of things we can make of this. One I, I, I reflected on was that this turn of events highlights that God wants to be properly understood. Okay? He wants to be understood as, as he is and fortunately for us we have God very well understood in the words of, of Scripture. God is not particularly interested in, God's, in people saying, oh, you know, I like to think of God as this or I like to think of God as that. God is not particularly interested in the things which people can just conjure up in their minds to suit their fancies. God is interested in being understood the way he has revealed himself as being in actuality in real life. Now, unfortunately, many people draw their views of God from popular culture rather than God's word and sometimes even Christians draw their thoughts of God from popular culture rather than God's word. I can remember one occasion I was sitting with a group of, um, actually it was retirement age people, uh, doing a sort of a Bible study on one particular occasion and we'd been looking at a particular passage and we were answering questions, in theory, from the passage. And there was one uh, gentleman there who spoke a few times and it was seemed clear to me that what he was saying was just things which had occurred to him during the course of his life and it had nothing to do with what had been clearly revealed in, in, in the scripture. He was just giving us his own thoughts rather than what we were supposed to be doing which was seeing what the Bible said on a particular topic. Uh, he was making, I think, perhaps the same sort of mistake that Eliphaz and his friends were making just drawing from popular culture and perhaps their own minds rather than what God actually was like as revealed in Scripture. So I think it's important that we try and get our views and opinions about God from God's word. We should get our views on what God wants us to do from God's word, not from anything which happens to cross our mind in an idle moment. Uh, Something for us to think about perhaps. Now there are some other interesting aspects to these first few verses as well and perhaps some of you may have um, sort of picked it up uh, as it was read to us. But as Eliphaz and his friends get it wrong about God, they need to do two things. They need to have a sacrifice made for them and they need to have someone mediate or be a mediator for them. And you might have sort of thought, well, we're, we're actually a bit like Eliphaz and his friends ourselves. We've gotten it wrong with God. We need a sacrifice and we need a mediator uh, to help us to relate to God. And of course we know from the pages of the New Testament that Jesus offers to be our sacrifice. So many verses speak about this but just to give you one, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 speaking about Jesus says, He did not enter by the means of the blood of goat and calves but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice allows the offer of eternal redemption, restored relationship with God to be made. So Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But also Jesus is the ultimate mediator between people and God and the New Testament describes Jesus as a mediator as well. For example in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 reading from there it says, For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator as well. So we, uh, in the same way that Eliphaz needed the sacrifice and the mediator to be right with God, we, all people today, need to draw and take advantage of Jesus' sacrifice and offered mediatorial work for us as well so that we can relate to God and approach God. Uh, Approaching God without the benefits of Jesus' forgiveness and mediatorial work will be like walking into a furnace without protective clothing. To give a bit of an analogy, we need that protection of what Jesus has done for us. How do we receive it? Well, we receive it, as we often said in this church, we ask Jesus to forgive us and so we want to follow him, to put him first in our lives. Forgiveness, follow, the Bible sometimes calls it repentance and belief. I guess a question which is always good to periodically ask is, have you at some point in your life um, asked Jesus to forgive you and said that I want to follow you for the rest of my life? That means that you get the benefit of Jesus' sacrifice and mediatorial work. Have you done that? Or, um, which also is a good thing but it's not as important, or have you come and sat in church for a number of years and you think that that's it? Uh, because sitting in church gets you stuck, you know, it makes you a Christian the same way that walking into a garage makes you a car. <laughs> Being here doesn't make the difference. The difference is that change with God, the confession of sins, please forgive me and I want to follow you. That's how we receive the benefits of Christ's mediatorial and sacrificial work. So um, if you haven't taken that step or you're wondering whether you have, perhaps you might want to have a chat to me or someone else uh, and uh, why not consider taking that step now? Something to reflect on perhaps. Well, let's now move on to the final few verses in Job, verses 10 to 17 and we're going to go to our second point uh, which is Job as beneficiary. And it certainly is a happily ever after ending, uh, perhaps a happy ever after ending on steroids you could say. Job's lost his children, most of his servants, his business and his health, but then God gives them, he blesses him again in all these areas again and again. And Job's uh, blessings are not just restored, but they're actually increased. Look at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. We then read that his siblings and friends come and eat with him again. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. And we read that he got back double the amount of camels, oxen, sheep and donkeys. And also he had more children, seven sons and three daughters. And then we read that he lived 140 years of age, uh, saw his children and their children to the fourth generation and died an old man full of years. Everything comes back in abundance. Now, it's even better than insurance. In insurance, you take an insurance on your car, your car gets written off, insurance gets you a replacement car, at least it should. Uh, But imagine if your car got written off and the insurance company said, look, we're going to give you a replacement car and we're going to give you a second car as well. You think, wow, that's what God's doing here. He's not just replacing, he's replacing and doubling on top. So we see God is actually being incredibly gracious upon graciousness. He's not just restoring Job to his previous position. Now there's one sort of slight exception to this which I suspect some of you may have thought of as well. Because whereas you can replace your animals and you can replace your business and you can get your health back and that sort of thing, um, you can't replace your kids, can you? you know? uh, I have no doubt that Job would have grieved for his original group of children who had passed away. No, undoubtedly he must have uh, because he was a good and godly man. But, of course, it would have been an incredible comfort uh, in, in that loss 
to have more children as well <laughs> whom he could uh, enjoy and appreciate and, and, and be thankful for. So there's that. Now we've seen um, over these past few months what Job has been through, the agony he's been through, how he's suffered. We've seen that he probably erred into becoming a bit arrogant in his questioning of God but he's stuck with God, he's persevered and the New Testament, you may have noticed from the second reading, presents Job as a model example of perseverance. Remember James chapter 5 verse 11, I'll just read it out for you. James writes, this is the New Testament now, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The point being made here is that in the same way that Job persevered and was greatly blessed, so too today Christians who persevere will be greatly blessed as well. Now in the Old Testament times, pre-Jesus under the Old Covenant, God's blessings were particularly, uh, I guess, in this life, in the here and now, material blessings, the sorts of things which Job has received. This side of Jesus, under the New Covenant, God often blesses us with incredible material blessings, as I'm sure many of us could testify to, but the real blessings he's really pointing to under the New Covenant are eternal blessings, blessings that you won't just enjoy for 70 or 80 years, but which we will enjoy for eternity, something much better. And so the incentive here is that we're going through the darkness of life, because life sometimes is very dark, we can look forward to the brightness of a new day. Now this idea is actually not just in scripture, but it's people seem to like it because it often crops up in literature and movies and things like that as well. And at one stage in the Lord of the Rings uh, book and well, the movie, and I assume the book as well, um, the hero Frodo uh, has been going for a prolonged tough time and he's on the verge of giving up. He says to his friend Sam, look, I, I can't do this. His friend Sam, who was really quite a good bloke, or a good hobbit as the case may be, uh, famously replies in the movie along the following lines. He says to, to the suffering Frodo, he says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something. You may recall that scene. <laughs> I guess in the same way for the Christian, uh, the sun will shine, a new day will come and eternal blessings do await. And this truth has helped millions of people over the years. Richard Wormbrand is a name which will be familiar to some of you. Richard Wormbrand uh, lived mainly in the 20th century. He was a Romanian pastor during the time of the communist era. He was imprisoned because of his Christian faith and testimony for 14 years at various times, or at various times adding up to 14 years. When he was eventually released, he got to the West and helped set up the Christian organisation Voice of the Martyrs. Some of you may have heard of Voice of the Martyrs. It, it seeks to support suffering Christians or persecuted Christians and their families where, in countries where this takes place. And uh, Wormbrand once mentioned that people in the suffering church apparently love the book of Job. Why do they love the book of Job? Well, because of Job chapter 42, that after prolonged suffering, blessings await. And these are truths which were expressed even more clearly in the New Testament, and particularly in places like Revelation, you know, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We look forward to a time where there's no more mourning, crying, sickness or pain. 
And so we see here in the last two weeks of our series on Job that there have been two great encouragements for us as we face or encounter suffering. Last week I imagine you would have been encouraged in the face of suffering to trust a God who is all powerful, all wise, all just and all loving. And this week we're encouraged to to endure suffering as we can, in addition to that, uh, consider our eternal home and the eternal blessings that await. But, and the third point, and very briefly this third point, these blessings are of course only ours if Jesus is our sacrifice and mediator. They only apply to us if we have sought Jesus' forgiveness and are seeking to follow him. Now, as many people will know here at this church, most terms we do a Christianity Explained course, uh, which is a course which goes through, I guess, the basics of the Gospel message in the Bible and I always say it's good for three groups of people. It's good for people who've been Christians for long periods of time to go over the basics of the faith. It's good for perhaps newish Christians to sort of consolidate what it is they believe but it's also good for interested inquirers who want to sort of in a relaxed way find out about the Christian faith. Well, we recently finished uh, this term's Christianity Explained course and I think we had, had people from all three categories from what I could work out uh, doing the course. And one of the uh, young ladies who was doing the course who, who wasn't a Christian at the start of the course became a Christian, which is wonderful news. She asked Jesus to forgive her and she's seeking to follow him. She's taken that step. Jesus is now her sacrifice and mediator. There are some other people who are doing the course who, who aren't Christians at this point but are thinking about it uh, and so hopefully they will at some time as we're seeking to sort of continue to chat with them. Let me conclude. Regardless of whether in your literature and movies you like stories of hard-edged realism with sort of fairly depressing endings, uh, Job is not particularly concerned with contemporary fashion. The book of Job is more concerned about real-life truths, not fiction. And the truth that it conveys about God here for us is that blessings await those who persevere in the faith. And so Christians can look forward to a climax as our lives continue, not an anti-climax. Christians who persevere will be graciously blessed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Job and the end of the book of Job and other passages throughout Scripture which reveal what awaits those who persevere in the faith, thanks to your grace and mercy. Lord, we do pray that you would remind us of this truth when we need to be reminded of it and when we really need it and perhaps we might even find ourselves in situations where we can encourage others with these truths in times of need. We thank you for your graciousness and blessings to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.